0: Hi there, welcome to Mosaic Intercultural Church, coming to you from London, Ontario, Canada. My name is Andrew Karam, and I'm the Executive Director and Pastor of Mosaic, and I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. If you want to learn more about Mosaic, you can find us online at www.mosaicchurchlondon.com. you for her. Thank you for your presence and power in her life. We pray that you would completely hide her in yourself right now and, and speak through her. And we are eager to hear from you, Almighty God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Praise God, church. Amen. Good morning once again, everyone. You are highly welcome. Uh, I must say, Pastor Andrew, thank you for this wonderful privilege. And thank you for CD Group for this wonderful opportunity. I'm so excited to share the word of God with us this morning. Praise God. Amen. So um, our pastor has prayed, so I can go on, right?
0: Sure, you
1: can pray whatever <laughs> you want. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you once again. I bless your wonderful name for this wonderful opportunity to be in your presence Father, Lord, I am grateful, and we all here are grateful for your faithfulness in our lives. And I pray, O God, as I want to share your word, Lord, take our soul control in Jesus' name. Minister to our heart, O God, fill us with your spirit and with your presence, and bless your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So our topic this morning is relational belonging. And uh before I start I'll read this verse again for the day, the scriptural reading for of the day, which is Mark nine, thirty to thirty-seven. And it says, They left the place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they are, where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had an argument about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus recalled the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last. And the servant of all, he took a little child whom he placed among them, talking to the child in he taking to the child in his arms, and he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Praise God. So the meaning of our topic, which is relational belonging, is um, about the central importance of interpersonal relationship, which include relationship between human beings and relationship between service, the communication between nature and the communication and also how we relate to people. So God made us to understand that relationship matters a lot. How we relate to people, how we communicate, it matters a lot. People communicate in different ways. People prefer to uh, communicate more with the pet around them. That's why people have pets at home like dogs, cats, and all that. And people, <laughs> the way people communicate with their children also matters a lot. So in all this, we as Christians need to have this urge to communicate in godly manners, to communicate with love, which is the greatest. Praise God. So according to the passage we read this morning, where Jesus talked about little children, that whoever welcomes one of these children welcomes him, not him alone, but also his father that sent him. And I began to think about why Jesus used little children for this illustration. I now remember there's one significant thing about little children, and that is pure heart. Praise God. You know, when you come in terms of little children, little kids, they always have pure heart. They don't bear grudges. They don't have fear. They don't worry about what to eat, what to put on, or what. In fact, they don't worry anything about life because they know that dad and mom is always there for them to provide what they need, to supply what they want. Praise God. That remind me um few Sundays ago, uh, when Benedict was crying. So that's his own way of communication when it comes to infant. There's a way they communicate. They communicate through crying or smiling. When they need something, when they're not comfortable, they cry out. And immediately their parents figured out what what makes this uh, my child crying. It's left for the mom to know maybe he could be hungry or his diaper is wet, needs to be changed. And as soon as the mom or the dad takes care of that, the child becomes comfortable and he will stop crying. So I remember vividly, well, immediately Catlin took care of Benedict, he stopped crying. And the next thing, when they're comfortable, they smile. When they're happy, they smile, they wanna play. They'll feel so comfortable that like for instance the age of uh hardy or grace when they're hungry they can walk to mom Mom, i need this i need that i'm hungry so when it comes to we as an adult we need to do the same to god to trust to depend totally to god for everything we want is it for food is it for work is it for bills whatever is it for healing or even in terms of our taking care of our children, like the ones that are not behaving the way it should be or the way we taught them to be, we cry out to God. He's a faithful God and he will answer. Like the mom and dad always answer the little children when they need something. God also does the same to us. Praise God. Amen. So let me share um, a little story about my, my life. My life is full of story, but I'll just share a little bit. So I was born, I'm from Nigeria, Africa, the eastern part of the country. I was born into a polygamous family. My dad married so many wives. In fact, he married five. So you can imagine that. It was a huge huge family. So uh, after I was born, I was seven months old and started working. Wow. Yeah, everyone was like, wow, this is great. This is wonderful. This guy is so smart. She's so fast. you so this and that. So, and uh, things was good that time. Everything moving okay. Um, I remember vividly well. They tell me the story that I have my own uh, little container that I do take to the stream because back in Africa we go to stream to fetch water for drinking or for house chores. So I remember I'll always be at the front with my little can, go to the stream, fetch water, and everyone was like, that's the baby of the house. Everyone loves me then. So and one faithful day when I was age four, I fell ill. I was, I was having a high fever, and my mom took me to the hospital. Um, after the the nurse gave me injection, I couldn't stand anymore. I couldn't work. It was like just a dream or like a dream. To my mom, I know it was a horrible situation. Then. For me, at that time, I don't really know much because I was still four. So I don't even know what life is all about. So, but thank God we are Christians. We worship uh, in Assemblies of God Church, which which is one of the Pentecostal church. So with that, as it happened, my mom took me to different hospitals. We went to different church programs different crusade, believing God for a miracle, thinking that one day I would just stand up and start walking on my two legs. But it didn't happen, but we never give hope on God. We still keep trusting God for that. So to the extent, uh, when I was um, 10, 10 years, about, yeah, I remember Reynald Bonke came to Africa. In fact, he came to my hometown for a crusade program so everyone was like wow you will take part to that crusade that man he does a lot of miracle and all that so hopefully she will start working and we went after that nothing happened and we still trust god things still things began to change in ugly ways because that time um now growing I can know the difference from left and right, from bad and good. And I began I began to see some different changes in my family because it's a a large family and when it comes to polygamous families, there's a lot of competition. So some people hate me for that. They do talk to me that I'm not good for anything. Even there's no need to go to school. There's no need to. In fact, how on is all for is all over. Inside me, I was so down, depressed and all that. Not really happy. I can imagine, I would think so. I'm not good for anything anymore. I can't go to school. I can't even wear shoes. I remember vividly well. One of my half-brothers said one uh, Christmas season that was uh, talking about buying clothes, shoes for um, all the children in the family. He said, no need to buy for her. She doesn't have a leg. She can walk. She don't need shoes. I never forgot that incident. But thank God today I can put on shoes. Praise God. So one verse in the Bible transformed my life. One day we went to church. And that verse is Revelation 21 verse 4. Which says that he will wipe away tears from our eyes. There will be no more death, crying, or pain. For all this will pass away. I was, wow. I said, thank God. So if I make heaven... I will walk again. I will be complete. I can do everything that I want. Oh my God. So I began to see joy in me. Because before the way I relate with people, I don't really re- relate freely with people because I was I would be always I was always scared of life. Maybe they may not uh, accept me. I don't feel belonging. But this passage really touched my life. I began to say, okay, I will serve God the more. In fact, I want to make heaven where there will be no disability, no more sickness, no more sorrows or whatever. I was so glad. And I began to relate very well with people. I began to see life in me. I began to depend totally on God for everything, I began to see ability in disability. And God so kind, a lady came because then I wasn't going to school back years because I'm disabled. And the lady was like, what is she doing at home? Take her to school. Thank God, after that, I started school. To the glory of God, I'm a graduate. And not only that, I married, I got married. This is my, I think, seven years of marriage, happily married. And not only that, I'm here in Canada seeing more opportunity, more wonderful people. And when I come to uh, Mosaic Church, I was welcomed. I'm so glad about it. There's no differentiation or people of color or whatsoever. I was welcomed. Praise God. So that's it. that is it for a little of my story, Let it not take much of our time. So back to our topic about pure heart. What do we do to have this pure heart? There's something we can do. And the number one thing is to acknowledge God, to appreciate God for who he is, to cherish him for all the wonderful works he does in our life. He never stops and he will not stop. Even when there's a song, even when we don't see him or don't see it, he still works and he will keep on working. Praise God. So another point is to ask. Matthew chapter 7 verse 7 said, Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. I remember again the psalmist in the book of Psalm 51, verse 10. Yes, which said, create in me a pure heart, O God. So we need to ask for this pure heart to go a long way in serving him. Like the song we sang this morning, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Where you move, I'll move. I will follow you. You can only follow God when you have a pure heart. You can only follow well, not just following. Praise God. So there's a lot when it comes to God. When you follow him, when you have this pure heart, he gives you the grace to do things. Not only doing things, but in a wonderful way, in an amazing way. Because the Bible made us to know that in the world there will be tribulation. There's chaos everywhere. Different home, broken home. In the world, fights, killing, shooting, diseases, affliction. So many. Even lose of job, people at school struggling with how to, how to graduate, how to cope with studies. There are so many, but when we have this pure heart, have the spirit of God in us, he will help us to overcome the world. Because after the Bible made us to know that in this world there will be tribulation, he said we should rejoice because Jesus has overcome the world. Amen. So that's the greatest, praise God. Amen. So another point is to pray. We need to pray for we, we need to pray without ceasing. We need to pray for grace to maintain this pure heart. Not only having a pure heart, but to maintain it, to make it steady in us. Because if we have this pure heart and the grace to maintain it, we can communicate very well with people around us, with people in the, in the neighborhood, with people in the family. In fact, even with strangers, we can make a good impact in their lives. Look at the barbecue we had yesterday. It was a wonderful one. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the neighborhood is also excited about it, that it has created an impact of self-belonging among the people in our community. Praise God. Hallelujah. So another point, without uh, wasting much of our time, is also... Welcoming the little children in our midst around us to encourage them. Because Jesus made us to know that if we welcome the little children, we welcome him as well and his father in heaven. Praise God. So let us encourage little children around us. For example, like Hadi always sing, present a special number. It lifts my soul. So, let us encourage them to do more for God, because when they do, when they grow up, when they grow up, they will not deviate from it. They will always work in part of and the ways of God. Praise God. So, I really thank God for this opportunity once again, so I will uh, invite my colleague Moses to explain more and to add more to what I have said, praise God.
0: Thank you, thank you so much, Pat, for uh, blessing and encouraging us with that word. Um, I'll get situated here. So, uh, yes, so as uh, Pastor Andrew uh, explained in introducing us, uh, we have been a part of, we've had the privilege of being a part of uh, a group, uh, a team of us who, um, for the last little while, have been tasked with the question of um, what it means for us to see uh, our city to see the northeast end of london um, experience the shalom uh, the fullness the wholeness uh, of the spirit of and the presence of god so um, to add to what pat has uh, challenged and encouraged us with um, I, i would like to share now an invitation to relational belonging so by relational belonging, by the way, I wrote down uh, my notes here because I know that if I didn't, um, we would talk until the cows come home. So we won't do that. Um, so I'll be referring to this. So uh, by relational belonging, what we believe is that all people should have relationships which allow them to form their identity, to give and to receive love, to experience safety in all contexts. So whether in traditional family or biological family um, contexts, or in other supporting relationships, this is what we believe should be the case. And yet, as we know, it isn't so. You see, we are broken people. Our neighbors, the people we live near and the people we live with are broken people. We live in and are governed by broken systems and broken institutions which prevent us from fully forming our identity in the way that God has created us to be. In the Bible, in places like Isaiah 58, as well as throughout the Gospels, we encounter different categories of people living in extremely vulnerable situations. You know, we see many times references to, uh, especially there tend to be four categories, right? So we see orphans, we see widows, we see the poor, and around us there are so many people living in abject poverty. And we also see the homeless um, and uh, the destitute, refugees, uh, if we're thinking even more globally. So, the sufferings of these people, when we read through the Bible, uh, we see that their sufferings are oftentimes the result of being cut off from meaningful relationships in society. In many cultures, uh, in many of the cultures we read about in the Bible, people were invariably ostracized because of who they were born as, right? So for instance, if you were born as a Samaritan and a woman, your life experience was especially difficult. I mean, you were a Samaritan woman, you you, you just did not matter, right? They didn't take you seriously enough. In fact, religious laws alone were created um, or created a system and designed institutions that would effectively limit your meaningful engagement in society. So. In many ways, who you were born as determines um, the treatment that you receive in society. Well, that was in the biblical times, right? That was then, and this is now. Yet we know that this narrative persists, right? So we know that women, and especially women of color, continue to be dehumanized by uh, discriminatory um, treatment simply because of who they are. They live in fear simply because of who they are, right? And again, there are so many categories of people who live in vulnerable situations because of who they are, because of the way that uh, our society has made it possible, uh, has made it. So speaking of women, on Friday at Western University there was you know, a, a massive gathering, a, a, a march, right, organized by thousands of students um, who marched and gathered together to denounce um, stories and instances of sexual harassment and sexual violence on campus. Right, um, uh, many of you might have heard about this. Some young women bravely shared their stories of being sexually assaulted, and how they would not, uh, how when they reported these instances, they were not believed. This is a reality that I, I guess it does not shock us because we hear so many unfortunate stories like this. This is our culture. This is the reality in our culture that we live in that hurting people are not believed. So while I have the opportunity, I'll say this much, and it's not lost on me that I'm a man and I'm talking about sexual assault. It's not lost on me, yet I'll say this. We must stop perpetuating a culture in which any victim, any victim of dehumanizing violent injustice is afraid to speak. When we talk about relational belonging, what we should strive for, what it points us to, is to strive for a community and a culture in which every individual, every human being, born, by the, born and, and, and bearing the image of God, feels safe to be fully human in the way God has created them to be. So again, I reference the events that occurred on campus on Sunday, or, or on uh, Friday, uh, because it's just the most recent example of human beings, precious human beings, so in this case, mostly women, experiencing harm and hurt and being silenced. And in that way, they're not able to experience the fullness of who they are. They feel stifled. So when we, th- when we think about, and when we talk about relational belonging, what we want to see is a culture, and by the way, that begins inwardly, that begins with each of us inwardly, and then with those around us, and then in the community around us, and then in our city. So in this case, I'll just wrap up this part that no, it means that there should be no room for gaslighting because this would be antithetical to the aims of relational belonging. What I mean by that is that in the sort of culture and in the sort of society and the community that we hope for, that we long for, where we want to see shalom being characteristic, more deeply characteristic among us, when I say there should be no room for gaslighting, it means that everyone should feel freedom to speak up when they feel harmed freedom to speak up when they feel that they have a dream, when they feel like they they, they want to, uh, uh, whatever, to to aspire to be fully human, right? So when we think about relational belonging, those are the sorts of features in the culture that we want to propagate, that we want to nurture. Now, I have it here as the research group. What I mean is the community development group. So those of us that have been meeting, um, so in the research group, we often talk about how where you live determines your quality of life. I find it really fascinating, and perhaps some of you will find this as well, right? I find it really fascinating that in the most, um, in most major cities around the world, or particularly in, the, in most major cities in the Western world, right? So in Canada, in, in the US, in, in, in Europe especially, I find it fascinating that the areas of town that most typically experience socioeconomic deficits tend to be, who can take a guess? Okay, maybe I'm alone by this, right? Did I hear anyone? It's typically in the East End, right? If you, this, I find this, you know, as like fascinating, right? Um, And I I don't know when it occurred to me, right? But um, I began to notice, right? I I think I was, you know, in in, in Vancouver a few years back. And then um, uh, we were chatting and I was getting to know Um, you know, some people in Vancouver, I I went to to visit a friend, um, you know, to attend a friend's wedding. And as we were talking about, you know, uh, Vancouver, the the cityscape, the landscape and so forth, um, they mentioned that, quote, the rough part of town, right, is the east end. And then in Toronto, it's the same, right? In the UK, it's the same. In Paris, in Europe, it's the same. The east end of town, right, tends to be the most uh, likely to experience high rates of socioeconomic deficits, right? So high rates of homelessness, high rates of uh, joblessness um, and, and so forth, right? And I became curious enough, right? To, uh, to find out why, why, why this t- t- tends to be the case. And um, the historic um, explanation for this Uh, is, um, you know, this is just in case you're interested, but the the historic um, explanation for this has to do with the Industrial Revolution. So during this time, major industries and factories were propped up, right, uh, across uh, Europe, in this case. um, They were propped up, resulting in pollution of the air with toxic waste, which in turn was blown eastwardly because of the westerly wind currents. And these had major implications for urban development, right? So, Maybe this would not surprise you, but uh, so the factory workers, so the laborers, who were oftentimes the poor folk, lived in the east end of town. They lived in those parts of the of the cities and towns where all this toxic waste was being blown, right? And so urban development was designed with that in mind. And over the years, right, there have been all sorts of um, yeah, I suppose, you know, studies and reports to understand the the, the impact uh, generationally and historically that has occurred from that, right? And the rich folk, right, have often tended to live on the other side, right, on the West End and so forth, right? And so the reason I bring this up, right, is first because I really find it fascinating, but more specifically, because in the research group, we often talk about this reality that where you live has a strong determination. It always determines, well, not always, but it strongly determines your quality of life. In, uh, I just gave a global, maybe even historic example, but um, in London, Ontario, I know, we don't have major factories and, and, and industries and that sort of thing. Yet we ourselves and others around us experience many shortcomings of life because of where we live and because of the complicated circumstances in our private lives. Many of us and many of our neighbors have been cut off from meaningful relationships within which they can form their identity and within which they can experience shalom and within which they can experience that fullness of their humanness as God has created them to. I like to go grocery shopping. Um, in my small family, uh, I, I get the privilege of um, you know, doing the groceries, like so running out and Um, doing the groceries. And I I like to go to uh, United Supermarket, right? Uh, How many people have been to United? Yeah, many of us have been, right? Uh, If you haven't, um, Friday evening I'm going so I can take you out there, it's really good, right? So, um, but you know, the reason why I like uh, going to United is because I get to see foods that remind me of home, of Uganda. Um, you know, on occasion, I've, I've, I've seen sugar can. I haven't purchased sugar cane, but it reminds me of home as soon as I see it. Jackfruit. Anyone has eaten jackfruit? It's amazing. Yes. Um, it's the African durian. Um, it's, it's really, you know, so I get to see so many different foods that just remind me of home. But I also like it because I get to see so many people from different parts of the world, right? So from, from almost every continent, right, that I could imagine. Just people uh, at United happily shopping foods that remind them of their own cultures, foods that they are familiar with, right? And when I see them, I often uh, imagine the joy that they will have as they go home and prepare these meals and, uh, you know, set up dinner tables and eat together as families, as friends, as neighbors, Right, so it's a kind of happy place for me when I go to United, right. On occasion, however, I experience a contrasting, um, uh, I I have a contrasting experience, right. So once in a while, when I go to United, and this has happened maybe in the last few uh, months, rather, uh, through the summer. Once in a while when I go to United, I see a young man, um, seated typically at the exit. Perhaps you may have seen him, right. he's often there uh, begging shoppers for any change. His name is Adam. I had a chat with him, uh, you know, I've chatted with him once. And Adam is homeless. He's he's in his mid-twenties, right? So really young and homeless. And he's been cut off from meaningful relationships in, in his life, right? So he's been cut off from his immediate family, biological family context. And as far as I can imagine, And also what he has shared with me, there are not so many experiences for him or uh, situations or contexts for him to experience anything close to community, right? So for someone like Adam, he's missing out on all the joys, he's missing out on all the, um, the opportunities of having his identity formed in the context of a community that supports him. Right, uh, uh, we talked, I talked earlier about you know, gaslighting and how we ought not to be people who perpetuate any gaslighting. Right? In other words, we hope to be uh, participating together in a community and in a culture that is ready to listen and, and so forth. Right? So we talked about that. So for someone like Adam, because he's cut off from many meaningful relationships in his life, he has no opportunity to be heard. Or if he does, then I certainly imagine that they're very, very limited, right? So when we talk about relational belonging, it's because of these realities that we aspire to the aims of relational belonging, right? So on, on the African, speaking of um, you know identity formation in the context of community, on the African continent, and, uh, and there are so many cultures that form the Af- African experience, Uh, One of, uh, uh, there's this notion, right? Uh, It's mostly in Southern Africa, right? Uh, Ubuntu, right? You may be familiar with it. I am because we are, right? It's this sense that I know myself, I'm able to understand myself in the context of others around me, right? So it is no wonder that when I was growing up in Uganda, I heard this statement, right? That it takes a village to raise a child and it took a village to raise me, right? Uh, (laughs) So it's no wonder that in that context, there's this understanding that it must take everyone to make the best of us, to raise the best of us, right? So borrowing from that notion of Ubuntu and also using language common to us about relational belonging, that's why we speak about relational belonging because we don't want people to continue to experience the deficits of life, to continue experiencing destitution and loneliness and yes, we know that the pandemic has really highlighted and it's really worsened experiences of, 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 um, uh, of loneliness, right? In, uh, I forget what country it is, maybe Japan, there's an actual minister of loneliness, right? That's how desperate you know, things have gotten. And so when we, speak about, um, when we speak about relational belonging, it's against that background that uh, we aspire uh, to the aims of what it means for us. So, how do we at Mosaic then? um, Sorry, just give me a moment. Um, Right, yeah, so how do we at Mosaic experience the wholeness of life within ourselves and with each other? And how do we live our lives so that our neighbors, right, in Northeast London and in any part of London that you're in, how do we live our lives? so that our neighbors can experience the same. In other words, how do we cultivate a culture of relation of belonging? Pat shared with us um, you know, uh, uh, her story, and particularly about a time when she felt as an outsider. She felt like she was an outsider, right? In her own family, right? So family should be one of those closest contexts for us. But she felt like an outsider, until she encountered the intimacy of Jesus. Until she felt, right, Jesus, like 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 we read in, in Mark 5, right? In Mark chapter 9, Jesus saying, you know, let the little children come, right? So this was the experience for Pat, right? She experienced that intimacy. So how do we experience that for ourselves, that relational belonging, and for others around us, near us? and also for the community around us at large and our city, right? So, again, in the research group, in the, in the community development group, we identified the practice of hospitality as the way of Jesus to help us nurture a life of relational belonging. When we read through the Gospels, we encounter the person of Jesus interacting with people and restoring their lives by his presence with them. What is remarkable, what I find really imar- remarkable and beautiful and I hope it also just astounds you by this beauty, right? Is that in almost every story we read about Jesus interacting with people, it is his presence with them, his nearness to them. It is his person with them that makes a difference. That was the thrust of his ministry here. You know, in order to restore wholeness to the brokenness in this world, and we talked, I talked earlier about how broken we are as people, but in order to restore brokenness in this world jesus came to our neighborhood he came to earth and he lived among us he suffered the pain common to every one of us he showed us the way of love his ministry was very much incarnational on account of his proximity to us our lives were changed our lives have been changed our lives will change our lives just began to spiral, to cascade into this beautiful domino effect of change, change towards wholeness because of his proximity to us, because he came into our neighborhood. He came into, uh, into this world where we were. And we know that in many places, right? So if you read the stories of Jesus meeting with different people, right? After his interactions with people, you know, notice that he often says, he often concludes his teachings, whether it's parables and so, and so forth, by saying, go and do likewise. So, at Mosaic, as we think about what relational belonging is, and as we aspire to, um, to cultivate a culture of relational belonging, let us look to Jesus alone. Let us look to Jesus. Let us look to Jesus, because the example that he sets is one that's sufficient for us to go and do likewise. So, through hospitality, we have an opportunity to experience wholeness with each other. Hospitality establishes proximity, which is so integral to nurturing understanding with each other. Now, I imagine many of us have, or perhaps all of us, right, have experienced hospitality in uh, in, in different forms. Every Sunday this summer, we've had the privilege uh, of uh, being hosted here, of being, uh, of experiencing hospitality the hospitality of Norm so thank you. I'm trying to find you, I can't, Uh, there we go. Thank you, thank you so much for hosting us. And because of your hospitality uh, to us here, relationships have been deepened, so thank you. That's one of the ways that hospitality allows us to deepen relationships, right? And that's one of the ways that we can cultivate relational belonging. Perhaps many of us have a default picture of hospitality that it's primarily about us hosting people in uh, over in our homes, where we get to sell, set the rules of engagement, right? So we, you know, we text or WhatsApp our, our neighbours or we call our neighbours and say, or, or our friends or our guests, right? And we say, hey, come at come at such and such a time, bless you, um, and we're going to eat this kind of food and such. Right? So maybe the impression that we have about hospitality is, you know, in that form, right? That hospitality happens when we host, right? Maybe, maybe that's an assumption that we have. Hospitality, however, is also about us being guests in others' homes. And not only just in in others' homes and, you know, folks coming into ours, but it's also being guests in each other's lives, right? So hospitality is not just about hosting people in homes, and us being hosted in homes, right? It's about being uh, sort of open and opening um, our lives one to each other. Remember the story of Jesus and uh, Zacchaeus, right? After their brief introduction, I love this story. I'm always fascinated by it. And I just run away with the imagination as to, like, how that might have unfolded, right? But remember the story, right, of Jesus and Zacchaeus. After their brief interaction, Jesus basically said, like, you know Zacchaeus, like, what are you doing tonight? at, say you know seven thirty p.m. I'm coming to your place, right? Like, I mean, he didn't have a watch and such, but the point is, Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house, and I've always been fascinated and really curious, but by what must have happened when he visited Zacchaeus, because we know that after that interaction, what we know is that Zacchaeus' life was so transformed that he basically gave out, he redistributed his wealth for the sake of others, right? So such was the depth of encounter with Jesus and Zacchaeus in his home, that his life was changed, and that therefore others' lives were also changed because of what Zacchaeus would end up doing. So here's an invitation to us at Mosaic, or even perhaps a challenge, in terms of relational belonging to practice hospitality so that we can nurture relational belonging. That's the invitation to us. Now, I know that a pandemic makes things tricky, right? How comfortable we feel going into others' homes and vice versa, we we know that uh, can be a bit tricky, uh, but we can also be creative, right? So remember, hospitality is not just about entering into people's homes and uh, having them in ours, right? it's largely about entering into each other's lives. We get to carry each other's burdens when we are in proximity with each other. In the research group, in the, uh, 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 de- uh, development, uh, in the community development group, um, we also thought that we can do this, we can nurture of belonging by joining others in what they are doing. For instance, if there is an activity—by the way, I'm wrapping up. For instance, if there is an activity um, that you enjoy doing, consider inviting others into it, right? Jill and Sela, my wife Jill and little girl Sela, they love walking in the neighborhood. I don't like walking; it's not my my love language. But <laughs> happily, there are women in the neighborhood, right? Especially mothers as well, uh, whom Jill and Sela enjoy walking with, right? So. Invite others into the things that you're just naturally doing every day, right? If you're an artist, consider how others might join you. Perhaps you may teach others how to do what you do um, and so forth, right? Hospitality happens this way. We build relationship this way. You know, one evening, where's Dada? I can't say. Dada, one evening, Dada walked over to our place. And I think she came to pick up something, right? But she ended up staying for hours and it was so amazing, it was spontaneous. We talked, we chatted, we laughed. And if you've ever had a conversation with Dada, I mean she will she, she thinks really you know <laughs> critically, and so we thought you know but we talked and such. and we also broke into spontaneous dance. It was an amazing evening because Dada graced us with with, with her presence. So Dada, thank you. I mean, when you left we, <laughs> it, we it was amazing, so thank you, thank you for that, right relational belonging can happen in these ways right we need not think outside the box oh maybe we do but we need not think like it's really complicated but it happens this way and finally when we think about relational belonging and we think about hospitality as that way of jesus of cultivating hospitality or uh, relational belonging something that we ought to be also ready for right is the vulnerability or the vulnerable nature of uh, of hospitality right so it means that if you have folks at your home or if you go over to others, be ready to expect mess, be ready to expect to find dishes unwashed to find laundry from last Monday unfolded right just be ready to find that that's that's that that's life that's 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 life right there right and so when I think about Zacchaeus also because it didn't seem to me like Jesus gave him much head you know sort of heads up. I imagine, you know, the guy's house must have been, you know, a bit cluttered with all sorts of things. But that was okay, right? Uh, don't quote me, I'm just imagining. So, Mosaic, let us then strive for relation a of belonging by looking to the example of Jesus so that we can nurture an environment in our hearts, in our homes, and in our community, and in this city, in which people can feel free to be fully human, that they would experience the wholeness of shalom. Amen. Thank you. You have been listening to a sermon podcast from Mosaic Intercultural Church in London, Ontario, Canada. My name is Andrew Karam, and I want to thank you for joining us. If you want to find out more about Mosaic and about the work that we do, please check us out online at www.mosaicchurchlondon.com.